it was just just the same good old boy network. And so all of a sudden, here comes this black woman with this black organization talking about we want our seat at the table. And they're like, okay, uh, <laughs> we didn't know you were felt this way. And and I, it's just it's just means that people need to speak up. They need, need to speak up. They need to show people where they're wrong, why they're wrong, and how they can correct it. My name is Linda Laurel, and I'm asking you to have the courage to listen with an open mind to all of our voices, because our voices matter. I want to take a moment to thank BMW of West Houston for sponsoring this episode of our Voices Matter podcast. BMW, of course, is known as the ultimate driving machine because of its precision and power. As someone who has driven a BMW for many years now, I can attest to that firsthand. But I think what's even more important, especially about this particular BMW dealership, is that it understands the power and the impact of giving back to its community. BMW of West Houston is known for its support of countless local charities, and that is important to us here at Our Voices Matter podcast. So if you choose to do business with BMW of West Houston, not only will you be getting the stellar first-class service that the dealership is known for, but you can also rest assured that you are doing business with a dealership that truly cares about and gives back to its community. Hi, everybody. It's Linda Laurel, and this is Our Voices Matter podcast. I've got a fun conversation for you today with Pam Perry. Pam is a PR marketing guru, brand strategist, podcast host, and advertising professional who came up during a time when there were very few Blacks in the industry, let alone Black women. She has some fascinating stories to share about challenges that she was presented with and how she overcame them, not only overcame them, but created methodologies to help move herself and others in the industry forward. And by the way, she also has some fabulous stories about growing up in the 60s in Motown when Stevie Wonder, Diana Ross, the Supremes, Marvin Gaye, the Temptations, the Four Tops, all those, those greats that we have learned to love and know their music through the years. Well, for Pam, many of them were her neighbors and she just saw them around the hood. So I can't wait for you to hear this conversation with Pam Perry. Pam Perry, it is so nice to welcome you to our Voices Matter podcast, and you look beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. I'm so excited. I've been looking forward to this for a minute. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. I've been looking forward to it as well. And so we're relatively new friends and, you know, kind of getting to know each other um, over the last, I guess, maybe year or so. Mm-hmm. Has it, yeah, it has been, right? So yeah. tell, tell our audience um, a little bit. I mean, you're, you're a PR publishing maven guru, and we're definitely going to talk about that. But I, I really want to start with a little bit more of your backstory um, as a, a young woman growing up in Detroit, Michigan, yeah. <laughs> the Motor yeah. City, Motown. Yeah. So so tell me, what what was that like growing up in Motown in the 60s? Oh, my God. It was like magic. It really was. Because, I mean, at any point in time, you could go somewhere and see the four tops 
or any of uh, Diana Ross or the Temps, you know, people will point like this is where they are. So you're young and it's like, oh, okay, those are the same records that we're playing in the basement. <laughs> so <laughs> it was kind of like magical like that because you think it's normal, you know, so you play a record and then you can point to where their houses are or point to where they are. So that part was really magical. And then, of course, obviously, you can go to where Hitsville, USA is, where the Motown is. And you can say, oh, like, that's where Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye. That's what, so that part was just really fun. So everybody was, of course, in the 60s, a child of the 60s, black kid, uh, loved the Jackson 5. And we all did talent shows. And, of course, we were all Motown stars. So that's where it kind of like this was like when I said it's magical because it's just so fun to know that you can um, touch and feel real celebrities, you know, yeah. people like the Four Tops and and uh, the Temptations, any of the Temptations and all of that kind of thing. So, yeah. It was and they fun. were and they were, you know, they were um, the idols of that time and they were achieving their success during a really tumultuous time yeah. in terms of what was going on in the country. Yeah. Uh, that was the, you know, the height of the civil rights uh, era and seeing them uh, still achieve their goals in spite of what was going on in the country. How, how did you think that impacted you looking at kind of how they dealt with what was going on and how you maybe took that as you decided to move on with your life? You know, it's funny because you see someone like maybe the Jackson Five, right? They weren't from Detroit, but they were with Motown. And you see these kids from Indiana growing up poor. And basically, we were poor, but we didn't know we were poor right at the time. Growing up uh, in the 60s, it's just like everybody had the same type of thing. And when you see that and you see them on like Ed Sullivan and things like that, or you see them on different TV shows, and you just think, if they can do it, I can do it. Because you're seeing someone like you on television you've seen someone being successful so it Barry Gordy if he can do it I can do it he came working out of the factory he was a songwriter he pulled together this team he got these kids together uh it just makes you think like it's possible for you and so all of us kids you know middle class lower lower middle class or whatever we 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 travel in this uh tribe or band we go from Detroit public schools into Cast Tech where a lot of the Diana Ross went to Cast Tech and we just feel like you know, we're going to pursue our dreams. We can do it. By then it's the seventies and you're the first wave of a lot of people going to college. A lot of uh, black people, black first generation of black people going to college. And so you're pursuing your dreams because at this point, you know, it's possible. You saw Barry Gordy do it. You saw, uh, you know, even other people in media, you saw John Johnson with the jet magazine, you see essence. I'm growing up with essence and I'm seeing myself in the magazine, um, in the pages of Essence magazine. And it just really reinforces that, yes, it's possible because you see a reflection of yourself in these particular publications and on television. And then don't talk about black radio because Detroit had like one of the first black radio stations as well, WCHB. So that was owned by the Bell family. So we knew them as well. So it had a black mayor for all most of my most of my adult life, you know, that, that I remember Coleman Young. So you just feel like that that's normal, that uh, expectations for black people, it's it's uh, something that wasn't really held back that you can go forward and do do whatever you want to do. And so we just kind of felt like that 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 shuts. But like, hey, you know, we're going to do this and this. We want to be a designer. We want to be a singer. We want to own a newspaper. We want to own a radio station. We can own a record label mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. we've seen it. 
Yep. Yep. And that's, I mean, it's just such a beautiful example of why representation matters. And, Mm -hmm. and, and we're having, you know, that same conversation today. We're having so many of the same conversations today that were had back in the sixties. So let's, let's fast forward a little bit and, and talk about how you decided to move into media, PR, marketing, communications. Um, what was it about maybe what you saw growing up, some of the experiences that you just shared with us and growing up with so many celebrities in your midst? What was it about that career path that, that struck a chord with you? Well, one of the main things is that I always liked writing. And so writing was very easy for me, very natural. Wasn't necessarily like fiction writing. It was more like I like to write and tell stories. So obviously when I was in school, I tried everything that had to do with writing. I was on the school newspaper, yearbook, that kind of thing. But then when I went away to college, I majored in journalism. And they had two tracks. They had a track for news and they had a track for for um, in the communication school for advertising and PR. And I said, what is PR? And so I really thought about it. And looking at my makeup, I always like promoting things. I always like really sharing things and doing the the that part of really just making sure that things are better and presented so that people can come to things and promote things. So I, I decided to go through that route because you're learning, you're learning journalism, obviously, you're still learning storytelling, but you're also learning about copywriting. You're also learning about the psychology of sales, which was really interesting to me. And I remember one time that I said, well, let me see if I do like news. And I remember one time going to the radio station and I'm volunteering at school and uh, they wanted me to be there at six in the morning to be there at the desk writing news copy at six in the morning. It was the winter time in Detroit. That ended my <laughs> career. <laughs> I, I knew where that was going. <laughs> I did not have the heart for that. I was like, no, I just want a regular job, right? I just want the regular like agent ad agency. They have regular jobs. That's PR agencies. They have regular jobs. Six in the morning, overnight. Uh, no, you no. Know, this is no. so interesting to me because a, a lot of what you said parallels my own journey in that I love writing. I was editor of my high school uh, newspaper. Um, I, I didn't get to journalism school right away. I had a career dancing and acting and all that, but eventually I did get to journalism school. And I remember being, um, you know, waking up at three or three o'clock in the morning to to go and and <laughs> and anchor a radio broadcast at KBIA FM at the University of Missouri Columbia, and you know, walking into a, a, a cold, dark building by myself at you know, four in the morning to, to go on the air. But here's the thing. I loved it. And that, you know, I loved that. And you'll have, people will have those epiphanies like either this is really what I want to do or not what I want to do. It's so interesting. So, so you went the marketing PR route and I went the journalism route, you know, just, but, but it started with the love of writing and, and communicating and storytelling. 
Yes. Yes. Oh my goodness. That yeah. is it. That is it. And just always, even like in my church, things like that, people would always say, "Would well, you know, we like you to promote it. We like you to get people here. We like you to, t- you know, make the announcements. It was always the promotion. Those were the things that I like to do. I would hype people up. And so I always tell people, I said, I'm your hype man. So I work with speakers and authors. It's like, I'm your hype man. I'm not necessarily the speaker speaker, but I can see they're it. And I'm like, they're hype man. It's like, okay, in order to do this, this is what you need to do. I'm even like fashion shows. I was never in the fashion shows, but I would promote the fashion shows. I would help sell the tickets. That would be the fun part, getting the flyers together, making sure yeah. that we're, if we're going to go on radio stations, that that we give them, you know, these are the models that are going to be on. Why don't you interview them? I mean, that part was just fun. Being yeah. behind the scene, yeah. I, I would call it behind the scene wizard of making all it happen, right? That was the fun mm-hmm. part to me. Yeah. <laughs> So um, how was it an easy path for you to get to where you wanted to be? I mean, so what was the journey? Because now you have your own company, mm-hmm. but clearly you didn't start with your own company. So walk us through a little bit of the journey and share maybe a couple of the challenges that that you ran into along the way. One of the challenges was that in the field, just like any field, if you want to work in advertising or any kind of public relations firm, there weren't many African-Americans that were working in there. They mm-hmm. weren't like in the professional capacity. So that was always a challenge. So even like my first internship that I really had in the field was under the American Association Advertising Agencies. I won a scholarship for a summer to work at J. Walter Thompson, which was a large ad agency. And it's for the minorities. It was for minority fellowship. They called it the minority fellowship. And it was maybe like six of us. We were one of the the few that, again, that was the first to go to college in our family. And we were all interested in going to advertising. We all worked at this big ad agencies. And we were, when we got together as a group, we were like, wow, where are you from? They were all from around the country. And we would go to our particular ad agencies and they would come back and we would stay, you know, in the dorm together. And it was like, how, how was it like for you? And it's like, I was the only black on my floor. I was the only black. It was like, me too. I was the only black. And it was like, we just felt so lonely. And there were some black ad agencies like Burrell was one of the first ones in Uniworld, but they were like a handful and definitely there weren't any black women ad agencies. Barbara Proctor in Chicago was the first one, but it was just like a handful. So the challenge was just really trying to figure out your footing in the area where there was no one like you that could mentor you that looked like you. And uh, I just remember that the challenges were if I wanted to work for a white ad agency and things like that, I would I would your confidence kind of doesn't feel as strong when you feel like you're the only one. It just, you just feel like you're the only one. And so you feel like you're breaking these barriers and, and that sort of thing. And so out of that challenge, I worked for the Detroit Free Press when I first got out of college, I worked in our advertising department. And even then there wasn't a lot of African-Americans working in the advertising department at the Detroit Free Press. I was also a stringer, so I wrote some freelance stories as well. But one of the main things working in the advertising department was that we had to call on clients that primarily were, you know, majority and we were the minority. And so it was just it was just kind of that weird feeling, just like with any field, probably. And uh, I know eventually after so much time with that, I just said, you know what, there's got to be a better way. And I started an organization called Blacks in Advertising, Radio and Television very similar to maybe NABJ, National Association of Black Journalists, but this was for those that were Blacks in advertising, radio and television, people who were in the advertising field. And we got together and we mentored. And what I felt that they needed, the younger people behind me needed to see people like me in these fields 
tell them how to get in, mentor them through, help them with college, show them the ropes, what to say, what to do, and really just be there for them. And so we ran that for about 10 years. Uh, we got to about like a thousand or so members and things like that. But out of the the loneliness that I felt, I felt like I needed to do something about it. There was not an advertising club, so to speak, for those Blacks that wanted to be in it. And and that's, and, and the part of it is, it's, I started it, I founded it, it was three friends. I never wanted to be the president of it. I wanted to do the promotion of it. And I got people there and we did our events. We did our career conferences. We gave out scholarships. I did the PR. And that's when it really, I really fell in love with um, doing work that was meaningful. So doing PR that was meaningful, meaning that nonprofits, right. like doing nonprofit work, meaningful work that would get the word out about that. It's interesting to me that um, as you were going through that lonely time when you were the only black person in a in your in your field and in your environment, that you still found a way to come out of that and create something positive. Mm-hmm. Um, when when you were in it, when you were going through that. Um, did you have to deal with any overt racism? And if so, yeah. So give us give us one example of something that happened and then how you dealt with that um, and what you learned from it. So, for instance, at, at this point, I've worked at the Free Press for about seven years and then I moved into radio and advertising. So you're selling print and now you're going to sell broadcast. So I'm selling broadcast. So typically in every radio station, no matter if it's a uh, easy listening, adult, contemporary, whatever, there's always like all of a white staff and then there's one African-American and we work by commission. They, they give you a list, like a list of different ad agencies that you can call on that you will get money, you know, get them to advertise. But mm-hmm. typically always they would be at the top of the totem pole and the African-Americans will be at the bottom at every station. Mm-hmm. And I realized that by just running into the different African-Americans that we would call one and two on the street and say, hey, you know, where do you work? And they'll say, and I said, well, what is your list or what are, what are you doing? And they would always be the one. And what would happen is that at a certain time, they would get so frustrated, they would leave. And then they would replace it with another black person at the end of the totem pole. They would yeah. get so frustrated, they would leave. And always, and so they never stayed there long enough to, to move up. And yeah. so that's when I say- Because the know, system was designed for them not to. Yes. And that's when I said, there is something that we could do about this. And I just really called them out about it. And it changed. That's when I started the organization. It was called BART, Blacks in Advertising, Radio and Television. And we got the MAB, the NAB to give us money, to give scholarships. They real, and, yeah. and I don't even know if it was overt other than the fact that maybe it was never brought to their attention or they just thought we were fine with it. I don't know what it is, but it was like, no, no we're it's not fine a- with it. That's such a great example because it's kind of it's a microcosm of a of a system that is designed to keep those who are at the bottom of the to- the totem pole right there. It, yeah. It's designed that way, mm-hmm. and so now we're having a broader conversation as a society about the systems. Pick one, <laughs> you know, policing for one. Wow. Okay, that's the one that's, yeah. that's that's at the forefront right now. That that it's hard for some people to understand that the systems were designed to keep those who are not uh, at the top 
at the bottom. It's designed to keep them that way. And so I think it's so interesting to hear you share just that little that little microcosm of how that worked in your world and how you were able to and you say you have to call it out. And that's what all the the protests, you know, that have been after George Floyd, et cetera. It's like, okay, we got to call this out. What are your your thoughts about making those connections? It was always a thing, too, that any of the radio stations, any of the TV stations, that there was always a Black person there that was at the front desk at the receptionist, and they would think that was okay. We have Black people. Yes, she's the receptionist, okay? We're talking about the managers. Yeah, who's who's making the decisions? Are there any Black people? (laughs) So they thought that they could fill out their little... uh, you know, EEOC type of things, but click, you know, da 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 da. And yes, we have a percentage. And I was like, no, this is not right. And so a lot of times there were allies that would say, you know, um, there there was a white advertising club called the Adcraft Club of Detroit. And I said it was white because it was majority white. And eventually we said, okay, we're starting our own Blacks in Advertising Radio and Television. We like to have a voice in what kind of programming that you have and what type of things that you do. And and basically they became allies with us because they didn't realize the organization was over 150 years old, right? So they didn't know. I mean, it was just just the same good old boy network. And so all of a sudden here comes this black woman with this black organization talking about we want our seat at the table. And they're like, okay, uh, <laughs> we didn't know you were felt this way. And and I it's just it's just means that people need to speak up. They need to speak up. They need to show people where they're wrong, why they're wrong, and how they can correct it. And so they corrected certain things by creating different programs, having a lot of African-Americans involved in their programming and speaking, finally, you know, where we could actually be part of their programming. And so I just find that people who would, people who knew better can do better. And so you just have to really educate them. And I, and I think they, that I, at, at some point in my hard. I really think people are good people. They just don't know better. And right. then it's up to us to educate them because they don't know. They've never grew up as a black and girl. That's why it's important to have conversations like this, where someone like you is able to share what your experience has been as you have been, you know, walking this walk in your career. Because if you don't put it out there and say, this is what happened. And this is how, how, what I've learned from it. And this is how I have taken that lesson and, and then moved things forward. Then we get to know each other. We get a chance to see what somebody else's experience is. And then it's, it, it just changes the way that you, you think. And I know, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here because, uh, you know, you, you are a communicator, you have your own podcast, get out there and get known. Um, and you understand the power of storytelling and how it can move us forward as a society. So when you look at how things were then, how do you how do you compare that to how things are now as you go about doing your business? Oh, Linda, it's so fun. <laughs> so, so yeah. So remember, I've come out of college a long time ago, and so it was always a small percentage of African Americans in colleges. So my daughter goes to college. She's at Michigan State. It's still not changed. When I look at kids coming out, it's still it's still a small percentage. They still are not feeling. Like they're part of the thing. It's just, it really breaks my heart. And it was like, what, why is it seem like it's going backwards? Uh, but but for the most part, I started my magazine, Speakers Magazine, um, because there were a lot of 
African-American speakers, black speakers that want to get shine and they weren't being spotlighted or even being able to be a part of the, another organization that always showed other faces that were speaking, um, whether it was Toastmasters or the National Speakers Association. They just didn't know. They've been around, like I said, they were probably around when slavery was around. You know, I don't know. They've been around for so long. So, so they just don't know. And so it's like, but there's so many Black speakers. And so I got really just frustrated, speakers and authors, of them just really trying to get shine. Then I said I created their own, just like Black radio was created, just like Black newspapers were created. They were created because they wanted to tell their own stories and have their own voice. And so it was the same type of thing, only this is just only on Black speakers. And so it's Speakers Magazine promoting them. And it's the same thing. I love Black media. I'll read like the Afro or the, um, the Baltimore Times, any of the Black-owned newspapers, and they have a really hard time trying to get advertising. Um, so that's why I always tell people to support them. If you want your voice as an African-American to really continue to be told, know that your your first stop is always the black media because they are the person that that's why they created what they created. Of course, obviously, you, you want to talk to other media. I said, but support your black media so they can be around. You know, the Afro has been around Amsterdam News, you know, the Michigan Crown, all these black newspapers have been around for a long time. They were started from the standpoint that we're going to tell our stories. Yeah, we're going to tell our stories without a filter from the majority media. And that was that was that's that's what we do. Yeah. So you say it. you look at your daughter um, as she's in college and um and you say things really have not changed to the degree that that we all hoped and thought they would have changed by now. And that, in fact, we seem in many cases to be taking steps backward. Yeah. So for what, men, I don't see a lot of black men in college. Yes, for her, I see a lot of black women, but not a lot of black men. And I and I told her, I said, wow, I said, where are your black men? You know, where are they? And mm-hmm. it's just it's just really it's it's disturbing to me. And I and I know there's organizations and things that are trying to help with that. A lot of black men probably just feel like I want to be an entrepreneur and they can make money. Um, you know, they look at Jay-Z or they look at uh, other type of things. And this is, you know, there's an easier way to go without the stress. I can do it myself. And the debt and the, yeah. debt and the, the, the cost and then the debt. So mm-hmm. what do you what do you think we're missing? I mean, what what is it that we can do? to finally move the needle forward to a point where it's not going to go backward. Um, I mean, I, I, I know nobody has a crystal ball and we're all struggling with this, but I would love to get your thoughts on that. I think, I mean, there is just more exposure. Like, for instance, Don Lemon on CNN, he talks a lot about that. It's like his, it's his little bandwagon that he talks about, right? He's always, he's got a podcast. But I think in situations like that people just need to have those conversations like your podcast what you're doing people need to have because people would do better if they knew better and i think they just don't know and so by you sweeping it under the rug not talking about it um it's always too interesting too when you see like um byron allen he's doing what he's doing in media and that sort of thing he's the first he's doing this or you know there's a lady that's over starbucks or you know they're they're the first black woman we're still in that phase of like they're the first black. They're the first black. And it's like, are we ever going to get out of the face of the first black of something? Uh, but yeah. it just goes to show that he, all of this time and finally, you know, blacks are being recognized as, as as viable part of something. And then when we are, we're like 
we're just spotlighted. It's like, oh, it's the first black. Part of that is like, yeah, we're proud of that. But then also, too, I'm not proud of that because it, it, they're not the only one. Uh, who was that? Was it uh, Kamala Harris said that, um, you know, I may be the first, but I don't want to be the last or something like that. It was I won't be the last. Yeah, I won't be the last. Yeah, yeah. And that said, is, I may that be the first, but I won't be the last. Yeah. Yeah, that was so that was so true. That just like exactly. It's not a prize to be just the first. No, I, I get it. And when you said that, it uh, it reminded me of, a, of a, a comment, a thread conversation that I saw on LinkedIn not too long ago. And someone had posted a photo of a black. I think it was a black woman who had achieved. And I don't remember now what it was, but she was the first to achieve that. And someone posted it and there were all these, you know, lovely uh, accolades and congratulations and whatnot. And then there was a guy, a, a white man who said, you know, well, why, why do we have to make a big deal about her being the first? And then there was a whole thread trying to explain why it's a big deal when someone of color has achieved something that's never been achieved before because as you were saying at the beginning of, you know, talking about your story, the system was designed to keep you down here. Mm -hmm. So when you finally get up there and it becomes, you know, it's like, yay, it can happen. And, and so let's celebrate that. But at the same time, we want to get to a point where we're, it's not where we have to even talk about being the first. Yeah. It is it's very similar to women because now at this a certain point in time, he says, you know, women were breaking the class ceiling. So when women were in like the workforce in droves, like in the 60s and the 70s, right, they were like the first in there. But now it's like, OK, so we got a woman that's running GM. We got a woman that's doing this. It's, it's not it's not like that anymore. So I want that to be like that for people of color. So they're not just singled out like, oh, it's a black person that's doing that. It's just a person that's doing it. And they're bringing along other people. They're they're doing things in excellence. That's what we really want people to see. We're exactly. doing things in excellence. We happen to be black. We happen to be a, a person of color, but we're not just like singled out because, or we don't want like set aside, like, oh, well, we need to put a black person there. No, you just need to recognize us and see our talent. One of the worst things I think that people need to know what they can do to a black person is not necessarily always being so overt in, in terms of racism, but just being ignored. Mm -hmm. That is probably the worst thing. I don't know if ever anybody has ever been felt like they're invisible when they're in a whole type of thing and they're felt to be ignored and invisible. That's a very big, and that's why a lot of you find a lot of black organizations, you know, whether it's the Black NBA, National Association of Black Journalists, they want to feel like they're part of something. They want to be seen. Yes, yes. We, so all, want, we all want to be seen and valued. And you're yeah. you're right. You know, that the when when you're ignored, then it's like you don't even exist. And I think that's why, you know, some some white people will say, um, I don't see color when having that conversation, right, about race and, and why, why. In fact, I was in a room on, on Clubhouse not too long ago where somebody walked into the room and, and it was a room about race. And, and, and she said, I don't see color. And the moderators stopped her, a white woman moderator stopped her and explained why it's, it's offensive to say that. And, that means and it, you don't see me. That means you don't see me. You don't see all of me. 
all of right. who I am, right? That's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and she, but, but so many think that that's a compliment and it's not, it is not. So all, all we're saying is just see us, yeah. you know, and see us for who we are, all of us. It's like being able to bring your whole self to your job, yeah. not just the part that you have to uh, reconfigure to fit into the, the corporate norm of what is acceptable at your job. And what and how much could you, how much more could you achieve and contribute to your workplace if you were allowed to bring your whole Everything. self? Yes. And, yes. and your whole experience and all that all that, that means. And I think it's just so important that we're having these finally having these kinds of conversations openly. I saw on um, one of the social media sites, I think it was LinkedIn, and it was like all of the younger uh, reporters and anchor women, and they were celebrating natural hair. And I hadn't really thought about that in terms of being like an anchor or reporter, right? So they're in different parts of the country and they may have braids, they may have natural hair, their curls, whatever. And it was just like a whole banter of them and all of them in one in one shot. And I thought about that. And they said something to the fact like, um, you know, so appreciative of being who we truly are. And I just thought, because growing up, obviously, when I was growing up, the pretty much the the anchor women had to look like the, yeah. the anchor women that people were used to seeing. Right. Straighten your hair. Yes, yes. yes. I mean, so, and it's so just so been so. within the last, you know, six months or so that we have seen the black female anchors start to wear their hair naturally. And it's beautiful. Yes. It is. It and is that was one of the things, too, that I think it was a change organization where they had the crown movement. And that crown movement was like an act that the people shouldn't be discriminated because of their hair. And this, again, if it's not your skin, it's your hair. And it's like, we can't change certain things, you know, so we just want to be able to be ourselves. We want to be able to sell. We, we're born this way. And so I just want people to understand that we can't change certain things. This is who we are. And uh, yeah, so that I saw that. And that just really just warmed my heart. I said, well, there is some changes coming. I see yes. that. I was like, I was so yes. excited about that. They were all in their 20s and 30s. And they were just being proud of who they are. Yes. And I thought that was cool. And, mm-hmm. and, and they're also extremely accomplished, excellent journalists and good at what they do. And so, yeah, they have natural hair. That reminded me of a, of a really horrible story here in, in, the, in the Houston area um, about a young black boy who was denied graduating from high school because of his locks. And yeah, it made national, it made national news. It made national news because his hair did not fit with the school's policy of what hair should be. This is what I'm saying. This is like this is in the 21st. Century. Like you know, this is the these. This is how I came out of the womb. This is what my hair looks like, and it made national news. And he eventually was able to graduate and all of that. But I mean, it's just we just have to you know we just have to have to make each other aware. Yeah, yeah and that plays on his psyche. I mean, you know, he's a young person, he's 17, 18 year old. So imagine what that's like at 17, 18 years old. And if, and if he hadn't had uh, parents who were able to speak up on his behalf, and he's also a very strong young man himself. So I, I think and pray that he's going to be okay. But, 
you know, that that is just not okay. So what what's your message to young people today, um, especially those who uh, might be listening to this and they're interested and in maybe following in your footsteps uh, along the advertising PR route? What would you say to them, especially if they're if they're young people of color? Yes, I would say one of the main thing is hone your skill, hone your writing skills. If you can write, you can go anywhere. Just hone your writing skills, write, write, write. That is really so key. And you can transfer the skills. You can maybe be a writer for BuzzFeed and then you can go be a writer for a newspaper. You can write for television, but write, making sure that you're you're honing those skills. And the other thing I would just say is relationships are everything. And I know a lot of young people are thinking like, oh, it's just it's all about social media. No, you've got to have FaceTime with people. You've got to call on a real phone. You have to spend time with people. Um, mentors are really important. I always say some things are taught and some things are caught. They're only caught if you're around that person in their space. And so a lot of interns and things like that, yeah, they are virtual and they, they do their assignments, but they have to be around me to just catch certain things. And I can tell them certain things because they are around me. So I always say just try to develop relationships. The relationships that I have uh, years, 20, 30 years ago, I still have. My my mentors are obviously retired now, but if they call me and ask me anything, I'm there for them. And because I remember how they poured into my life. So I always tell people to make sure that they understand what a mentoring relationship is. It's not that the mentor has to give to you. It's the fact that you serve your mentor and then the mentor pours into you. And so don't ha- don't come to a mentor with the entitlement type of thing like, oh, well, you're supposed to just hand me your Rolodex. Well, they don't even use Rolodex. You're supposed to hand me all your contacts and then I can go and, and do whatever. And it's like, no, you have to earn this because I need to watch you for a while. I have to understand if you're serious. And so if you are serious, you're going to go to the conferences. You're going to read the books. You're going to do the research. You're going to continue to write. You will volunteer, you will assist, you will make sure that you're always not doing things just for yourself, but doing things for other people. That's what my mentors taught me, that it's not just about you, but what are you doing for other people? Because it's okay, you know, you could be great at what you're doing, but if you're only doing it for you, you're not really leaving a legacy. So my mentor, one of my favorite people that I heard a long time ago, mentor from afar was Percy Sutton. And Percy Sutton changed my life when I heard him at Howard University one time in a communications conference. He says, you can be as great as you want to be. And Percy Sutton was like the lawyer for Malcolm X. He said, you can be as great as you want to be. And he owned some radio stations and cable stations in New York, WBLS, uh, I believe it was. And he says, but if you don't show that you're doing anything to serve your community, help your community or help someone else behind you, he says, I will send you a nice letter. Thank you very much for your accomplishments and for your skills. I wish you well. But when you decide that you want to uh, really impact our community and, you know, then I can speak with you. And I remember that just stuck with me. I was in college. I was like, oh, my God, I'm living my life for myself. I can't just do that. There's other people out here that I have to help behind me. And that stuck with me. Yes. And it, it took him to say that in like a at the level where he was. Mm -hmm. To really shake me that was like, you know what, we are not out here. He says, you know, if you have all this stuff on your resume, but I see you're not part of the NAACP or any kind of black organization. It's like, what are you trying to do? Who who helped you along the way? And who are you going to help? So, yeah, that was one of the things that really made a difference to me to really say that you do need a mentor and you need to make sure that you mentor someone else. 
that is really key. You got to mentor someone else. Once you get to paying it forward, it's called paying it forward. And it's all about, like you said, it's making that human connection and, Mm -hmm. and you can't just do it through social media. No. (laughs) <laughs> so let's let's bring this full circle because you know one of the ways that we connect is of course through music and that that's one of the beauties of of any art um, that speaks to us on a human level whatever it might be um, but we started off talking about Motown because that's where you grew up so I have mm-hmm. to ask you what do you have a favorite Motown uh, song that just keeps you going. <laughs> I would say, well, my favorite Motown person is Diana Ross, hands down. I mean, she's like. Did you say she went to the same high school that you did? Yes, she did. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Uh, I would say anything by Marvin Gaye right now. You know, I mean, there was a special not too long ago, but Marvin Gaye was just so ahead of his time, his lyrics and things like that. Yes, I Um, agree. I, I just I remember watching a special about him and, and obviously I was young when he when he was, you know, doing mm-hmm. his thing mm-hmm. during that time. But, you know, all of those songs about yeah. um, what he was what's doing, going on, what's going, what's going on? on. And it just was like, really, he was ahead of his time in terms of really calling things out. Yeah, that was the Don Lemon, Don Lemon CNN yes. special. I saw it. It was phenomenal. Oh my God. I yes, get chills thinking about it. it if, yes. if, if people who are watching and listening right now, if you have not seen that. Go, go watch it. Go watch it because he was so prescient. I mean, it's, it's like he could just see it coming. And, and so much of what he articulated that was going on at that time is happening right now. Mm-hmm. And Stevie Wonder is always a classic. I mean, I will just tell Alexa, play Stevie Wonder, and I can listen <laughs> to that all day. It's like all day. Anything Stevie Wonder is for sure. That is like the. And main back guy. in the day, it would be like, who the heck is Alexa, right? <laughs> Alexa, play Stevie. Alexa, play play Marvin Gaye, right? Just play Motown, Alexa. Just yes, yes. Right? Oh, it's on. It's on a lot. It's on. A lot. <laughs> I bet it is. Pam, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for dropping your gems and and just sharing all of your wisdom and your positivity and and helping us see, you know, how you can take a struggle and a challenge and turning it into something that is meaningful and and that helps move us all forward. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. This has been really great. I really appreciate you. Love what you're doing. When you come in our clubhouse, I get so excited because you're always sharing your wisdom. And I'm just I'm just so excited to be a part of your show. Well, thank you. And um, let's just keep keep working together, collaborating and doing what we can to make this world a better place. Yeah, that's the point. All right. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Oh my goodness. I am ready for my Motown fix. I'm about to go play What's Going On by Marvin Gaye the minute I stop recording. I want to thank you guys again for giving Pam permission to speak and for having the courage to listen with an open mind. Really appreciate you being a part of the Our Voices Matter podcast audience. And you know, of course, we're going to link to everything she's up to, just like we always do in the show notes. So if you have not already done so, please subscribe to this podcast. Like, download, share, you know what to do. And by the way, if you want to ask me a question, just go to ourvoicesmatterpodcast.com. On the homepage, click on Ask Me Anything, and I might just answer your question in one of my upcoming podcasts. So I look forward to communicating with you and sharing your stories. Thanks so much, everybody. Take care. See you next time. 
Thanks again to our sponsor, BMW of West Houston. There's a special offer for members of the Our Voices Matter podcast community. Just click the link in the show notes, bmwwest.com.